just like that, we're back. What's up, guys? How you been? Josh Pate here, host of Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. That's a show we do live every Thursday night, every Sunday night, right there on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It's at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. But if you don't catch the live version, that's fine. It's there all week in a recorded version for you to watch at your leisure. Some of you listen to the podcast versions of those shows. We love that, too. But we realized a few weeks ago, we don't have time to get to all the viewer questions. In fact, we don't have time to get to 95% of them. So we launched the Late Kick Extra podcast, which you're listening to right now. Very informal, very laid back. I get to as many of your questions as I can. And uh, again, like I said, a very laid back setting. I have my feet up on a nightstand right now, sipping a double espresso. Sort of one of those iced coffee deals. I don't know a lot about coffee. I had our bud Elliot teach me how to make coffee and then promptly forgot most of what he told me. So I just keep buying the store-bought version. But here's what's happening. You got the email inbox. You can hit me at joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can hit me on Twitter at LateKickJosh, and I would ask you guys to follow me there. You can also, on any version of Late Kick Live we do on YouTube, find a pinned comment under those videos, and that's where you can submit your questions that way. But here's the preferred way, and so many of you did this this week. If you haven't already, give us a five-star review if you're listening to this podcast. A lot of you have. Some of you haven't. I'm not going to pressure you. We know how bad peer pressure is. We all went through middle school programs. But when you do that, give us a written review too. And in that written review section, submit your question there. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but it really, I mean really, helps us out. Those reviews and those five stars, they really help us out. So, to show you how much they help us out, I'm going to prioritize those questions to the front of these podcasts. And we've got a lot of them tonight. I've only put out that call to action for one week and already you guys have overwhelmingly responded. So keep that up. The five-star reviews are gold and the written reviews are gold. And remember, this is your show. It's not mine. So if you don't like the format, submit a question and take me wherever you want us to go. It doesn't even always have to be about college football. If it's appropriate, if I have any clue as to how to answer it, and maybe even if I don't, we're going to hit it. So with that, sit back and enjoy the Late Kick Extra podcast. Let's go. All right, let's start this one off where I promised we would for about a week now in the comments and review section in the podcast itself. I told you guys, it helps us more than you could possibly know to give us these five-star reviews and write us a review. And I figured, why not harness this to your advantage and our advantage? And let's use this for another purpose. You give us the review, and we got many of them, and we really appreciate it. We got well over a dozen to two dozen last week. But then I said, put a question in there. And I will prioritize those because these, relative to the Twitter DMs and the emails and YouTube, and I appreciate all those as well, these help us the most directly. These get noticed the most by management. So this is my little token of appreciation. We're going to get to everyone, but let's start it here. MKBHD, that's the uh, poster here. They ask, what is the path for a team like Memphis, of which I am a fan, or any other G5 school to get into a P5 conference? Notice the question here. They're not asking about playoffs. They're asking about moving into a P5 conference. Really enjoy the content. Wish you guys spoke more on the AAC, seeing as how the gap between them and the rest of the G5 conferences is growing, but I understand why you don't. Well, how refreshing. I should hire you right now. This is the question to me. It is not how can you make the playoff, because that's, that's a year in, 
and then done type deal. That's any given set of circumstances coming together to create a magic season. I mean, I was looking at UAB today. UAB could theoretically put themselves in the New Year's Six conversation this year. Does that mean that they are the equivalent of Auburn? Certainly not. They're not on the same plane because they don't have the same resources because of the G5, P5 separation, among other things historically that come into account there. But how do you get yourself to that P5 table? I know we have a lot of people who listen to this who are hardcore fans, but just to very briefly in 20 seconds, tell you what I mean, P5, G5, the Power Five conferences. It's where all the big TV money is. It's your ACC with Clemson, Florida State, Miami. It's your SEC with all the big boys down here, Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Florida. And it's your Big Ten, Texas and Oklahoma, your Pac-12. You got USC, Oregon, Washington, et cetera. Who do I leave? Oh, Big Ten. <laughs> the Big Ten, they play decent football at places like uh, Penn State and Ohio State and Michigan too, don't they? Iowa, Wisconsin, got a Wisconsin question later in the show today. So how do you get to that table? Because that's where the big money is. That's where the sustainability is. I think what you have to do is you have to think that way, first off. Secondly, if you're Memphis, if you're Houston, if you're East Carolina, if you're UCF, Cincinnati, these are the schools that are always in the conversation behind the scenes in sort of our little media world. And we cross-reference with a lot of different sources. Those are the programs that are spoken about most frequently. Not an exhaustive list there by any stretch. You got to do a few things. Fundraising has to be really, really, really hot. You got to have that. It's more important, arguably, than how your team's performing on the field. Fundraising's got to be there because you got to have cash reserves. You have to have something to offer the conference in terms of your infrastructure, both financial and physical. You have to roughly be on par or have a projection over the next five years where you can get on par with the bottom 30% of a Power Five conference. You also have to offer something in the way of TV market. Let's just call it what it is. That's the only reason a program like East Carolina, for example, may be attractive. If you can do all that, and there comes a time, which I believe it will. I had a conference commissioner tell me otherwise in the past week, but I believe we have another round of conference expansion coming. That's how you get yourself at the table. That's not an easy answer. I know it's very complicated, but that's the reality. It's not a cut and dry thing. It's more like an onion and you keep peeling the layers and all it really does is make you cry. All right, what a start. Let's move on. Frito, also in the podcast review section. How about this one? Why is Texas A&M your most intriguing team in college football this year? I have said that. I understand that if we beat Auburn, we may start 10-0. and Okay, pump the brakes slightly, Frito, but I continue. Is there more to it than that? Yeah, there is more to it than that, Frito. Now, you are right. There is a chance this year, if, if things align, you could start 10-0. Hadn't beaten Auburn yet with Jimbo in town, trying for a third time this year. But let's say they do start 10-0. I mean, let's pause there, put the bookmark there. Let's pretend they're 10-0. I've thought for well over a decade now that Texas A&M has been the biggest sleeping giant program in college football. Used to be Georgia, but then Georgia – started to hit their stride under Rick, and then they didn't quite make a championship, but they got real close, and then they hired Kirby Smart, and then they made it to a championship, and they're recruiting top five every year. So Georgia's not sleeping anymore. They're very much awake. Texas A&M has now taken that place as the biggest sleeping giant program in college football. Now, I think they have awoken. 
I don't think you're asleep when you're paying a guy 75 million guaranteed. I don't think you're asleep when you're recruiting top 10 classes bordering on top five classes. Now it's just that, you know, as well as I do outside of A&M nation, 80 plus percent of the country has got to see you win 10 games or more before they're going to take you seriously. The whole reason that I'm focused on it, the whole reason they're the most intriguing team to me is because there is no resource that you need to win at a championship level they don't have. We have never seen this program reach its true potential for an extended period of time. That's, that's my belief. Jimbo's in year three now. This is not year one. Year two, you guys have been patient with him. You invested properly. You got the right guy in place. And now you've, you've gotten out of the way. You understand you got to build the roster his way. It is a daunting schedule year in and year out. But now it's year three. You got the experience at quarterback. You got a more favorable schedule. That's always relative. You've got the roster that largely resembles what he wants a team to be now. Much more of his thumbprint is on it. I want to know what that expectation level is. And I want to know if they're not in that conversation towards the end of the year because they got a heavy back half of the schedule. I want to know what it's going to sound like. There's just so much that intrigues me about Texas A&M and Penn State. I'll just tell you, those are two that are right at the forefront for me this year when you're talking about piquing my interest. Moving on. Ben Jammin since 1994 in the podcast review section. I'm a Tennessee fan. <laughs> I'm going to agree with everything he's about to say. I think the 2016 Tennessee season was both the most fascinating and infuriating season ever. It had it all. Top 10 ranking, epic wins over Florida and Georgia. It seemed like we were headed to an SEC Eastern Division title, and then it fell apart. A double overtime loss at AM with seven turnovers. That's right. Not in a season, in one game, seven turnovers. Inexplicable losses to South Carolina and Vandy. Florida won the East. Our star running back quit midseason, and Butch dropped the champions of life quote. Where did things go wrong? <laughs> I laugh to keep from crying because I lived this one right there with you guys. I, I wanted so bad. I still to this day do. I want so bad for Tennessee to return to prominence. I'm not talking about winning a national championship necessarily. Just be in the hunt. Be there. Be a player every year. Because there's a part of the SEC East that seems hollow if Tennessee's not a factor. Now, if you're 20 years old and you're listening to this, that makes no sense. Tennessee's never been good in your lifetime. As, as long as you can remember, they've never been there. But there was a time, believe you me, my friends, when they were there. Now, what we're talking about here is as close as they've been in that time period. 2016, he's right. They were in the top 10. They beat Florida. I want to say it was like a 10-point win over Florida. And then they go into Georgia. I was at this game. And this was the week after we had that wild scene at Auburn where it looked like LSU had a walk-off touchdown, but then they ran the replay and time had run out. And then it turned out Auburn won. And then Les Miles got fired. So I was six days removed from witnessing that. Roll into Athens, Georgia on that Saturday. And you had time winding down. I want to say it was Jacob Eason to Riley Ridley for Georgia to take the lead. And Georgia can't even keep the players on the sidelines, so they get a 15-yard celebration penalty. They don't think it's going to matter because they're like 20-some-odd seconds left. And Josh Dobbs gets them out to midfield. When you tack on the penalty yardage, they make a couple of plays, they get to midfield, and he heaves one to the end zone. I'm standing five yards from Jawan Jennings, maybe five, ten yards, when he catches this ball in traffic, heavy traffic in the end zone. 
and place goes, well, I was in the Tennessee end zone. So that little place, that was one little speck on planet earth that was going nuts. Everyone else was just bathed in silence, stunned disbelief. I've never seen that many mouths wide open in my life. And I've been to Golden Corral before, and I've never seen that many mouths wide open. So as the stadium's emptying out, you got Butch over there, all but tearing his ACL celebrating. He collapses on the ground, starts crying. And I re- I've told this story on Late Kick Live before. I wear, or at the time, the station I was at, we were wearing orange polos with our station insignia on the front, WLTZ. It was the exact same color as Tennessee's orange. So I'm filming at the time and I'm following Tennessee off the field and I walked straight up in their locker room, which you're not allowed to do in a regular season game. But because I had the orange shirt on, they let me in there. So I remember all that. Now I walked out shortly thereafter, just long enough to snap a picture. I walked out, but then what happened was, that was the question. You didn't ask me to tell a story. The question was, what happened? Well, what happened was, Alabama killed you 49 to 10. So that one wasn't even close. And so that was a smack of reality to the face of, okay, well, obviously we're not a national championship contender this year. Could we be an SEC East contender? But then, as you said, you had one of those, there's an old saying, October parades lead to November fades. And that's not an old saying, really. I don't know why I said that because I made it up today, but I'm going to patent it. October parades lead to November fades. Well, that's what kind of happened with Tennessee. And I always, Think about a season. You guys know how much I love my car and traffic metaphors. But if you think about a season and you think about what it takes to make it through an entire season, get to that finish line in conference championship settings, you got to go through a lot. Those seasons are long. And the sad reality is the vast majority of programs, even the really good ones, you don't have enough gas in the tank. Tennessee didn't have enough gas in the tank. That's what happened that year. They had about eight weeks worth of gas. And boy, when it ran out, it ran out, didn't it? Caitlin, also in the podcast review, which stadiums have you not been able to cover games at that are on your bucket list? I got several, but two of them, one is Penn State. The other, probably a little bit off the radar for you guys, is Iowa State. I've always watched games at Iowa State, and it's always seemed like for the venue to be smaller than the bigger cathedral-type stadiums in the Big Ten and the SEC, It seems like that's a really raucous environment. Now, Penn State, it's obvious. If you've ever watched big games there, it's obvious why I would want to go to a game there. But I've not gotten out of the SEC a whole lot because that's where I covered games when I first got into this business. So, you know, going to places like Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, places like that I haven't been. I was very lucky, fortunate to be able to cover a game at Notre Dame when Georgia went up there. Now, that was was a scene. That was pretty incredible. And see, if you were like me and you grew up a fan of the sport, then, you know, you watched movies like Rudy when you're growing up, for example, and I'm eight years old watching that. So it quickly, it it sort of enshrines in my mind these brand name programs, Notre Dame being one of them. You know, I was thinking when I interviewed Brian Kelly a couple of weeks ago, it's not so much Brian Kelly. I mean, I'm a big fan of Brian Kelly, but it was... I'm sitting here and I'm interviewing the head coach of Notre Dame. So this guy's the head coach of the same program that I grew up with a ton of reverence towards just because I, I knew the history, saw the movie, watched them on NBC, always liked the uniform, always liked pretty much everything about the program. So it was a really big deal. It was so much a big deal to go 
and cover a game at Notre Dame Stadium and saw a really good game too, that when we were leaving, I don't know how often I've ever done this, but when we were leaving, I had uh, two other guys with me from the station I was at at the time, and we drove up and back. That is Columbus, Georgia to South Bend, Indiana and back. That's almost to Canada, people, in the same day. So um, I told him, hold on. And I just kind of walked out in the stadium. It's totally empty. I mean, everyone has long since left. And I just kind of sat out there for like two or three minutes, recorded a video of it, and just thought about it. You know, I mean, one of those, who would have ever thought I would be fill in the blank, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's move on. Seven String Virtuoso in the podcast review. Why hasn't Steve Ensminger gotten the credit he deserves as an offensive coordinator and developer of quarterbacks at LSU? And what will he do to help Miles Brennan this year? I think this is a pretty easy answer. LSU was nothing to write home about offensively before Joe Brady came in. Joe Brady comes in. They light the world on fire. You had the same quarterback in Joe Burrow lights the world on fire that did far less with largely the same supporting cast the year before. So it's only natural for people to look around and say, all right, well, Joe Brady was the secret sauce there. And now he came in and now he's out of town. And so there just wasn't a lot of headline space left last year for Steve Ensminger. Now you talk to people at LSU and they got all the confidence in the world in him. And if we've learned anything over the last year, it's trust people at LSU when they tell you something about their program. But if they do it this year with Miles Brennan, as you mentioned there, if they do it or even something remotely comparable in the same galaxy, offensively, statistically, as they did last year, this year with Ensmeager calling the plays, and he was calling them last year, but as the for sure, the man in the booth on Saturdays, no question, when they're showing the broadcast feed of the, of the booth, it's not Steve Ensminger and Joe Brady. You just got it zoomed in on him. If they do that this year and Miles Brennan looks like a bona fide top 10 quarterback nationally, I think he will get a lot of praise. Jamie on Twitter asks, this is a very succinct but very good question. How do you get sources? That's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. How do you get sources? Well, the way you cultivate sources, Jamie, depends on approach and depends on who you are. And when I say who, I kind of mean your personality, but I also mean what line of work are you in? Are you in radio? Are you in print? Do you cover a specific beat, which is a fancy way of saying, do you just cover one team? Are you a regional guy? Do you cover the Big 12? Do you cover the ACC? Are you a national guy or girl? And so um, the way I've done it is twofold. The way I've done it is, of course, you try and have as many contacts and programs as you can. You have to establish trust, trust, Sometimes you have to show people inside a program that you can be of value to them. That doesn't mean serving as a mouthpiece, but it means giving fair, honest coverage. Uh, you don't cut corners, et cetera. And so overall, you can elevate the profile of a program that's doing it the right way if you cover them the right way and you get rewarded for that. But I'll tell you what else I've done, Jamie. A lot of you guys listening know exactly what I mean because I'm talking about you. A lot of the best sources you can get don't work in athletic departments. They may know someone in an athletic department, or if they do work in it, they work in maybe an area of that athletic department that you don't know about. You don't ever hear about certain support staff roles or you know equipment management roles, nutrition. It's just all these different avenues that you don't really know about. But those people listen to this podcast. They listen to Late Kick. I've had 
in the past week, I've had two regular position coaches reach out. I've had a power five head coach reach out in the last couple of weeks. I've had strength and conditioning coaches reach out. This is all in the last month. And just kind of say, hey, love the show. You're probably never going to see me comment on there for obvious reasons, but off the record, love the show. So that's how I've developed them. But I'll tell you what else we've done. I give you my email address for a reason. I keep my Twitter DMs open for a reason. A lot of you have a lot of information about your programs. And some of you, I got about a dozen of you right now that I'm in fairly frequent contact with, give a lot of really good information. You got some pretty unique perspective. You've got access that I would not have in very nuanced areas. You got contacts that are very, very, very valuable. So that's another way that I do it. You know, I I keep everything open so that I can correspond with you guys because sometimes you are the best sources. Connor, in the email inbox, how did you guys start getting all these interviews? Connor's talking about our social distance series on 24-7 Sports. What was it like interviewing the likes of Nick Saban and Urban Meyer? Do you have any behind-the-scenes stories? Yeah, Connor. Well, first off, let me tell you what it was like. Awesome. Again, if you grew up like I did, and you grew up specifically in the era that I was growing up in, you see, when I was coming out of high school, not too long thereafter was when Urban Meyer, you know, he had come to the SEC about the time I was graduating high school. So Florida was starting their run there. Nick Saban had been at LSU, and then he was about to come back to Alabama. So those two guys that you mentioned in particular, I think I've told the story about making it a point to be at those SEC championship games in 08 and 09. That was Saban versus Meyer, part one, part two. And um, so, you know, while you're conducting those interviews, your mind's not thinking like that. I got some memory framework techniques and focus techniques I used to where your whole concept is you could be interviewing a real life alien and you keep your cool. But afterwards, you don't have to do that. So afterwards, you're reflecting, or at least I was reflecting on, I always love to play this game, which is probably popular. The whole, if I could go back 10 years ago and tell myself this, or if I could record a moment of my life, my present, and show it to 10 years ago me as a vision of the future, what would the me of 10 years ago be saying? And to be honest with you, I don't know what in the world the 10-year-old version of me would have been saying if I'm looking ahead to 2020 and you see, oh, you got Urban Meyer there, you got Nick Saban there. I'll tell you another one that was real fun was Matthew McConaughey. Um, Not so much because of the interview. He gave us some really good stuff in the interview, but you know, I've never spoken to Matthew McConaughey in my life to that point. And we link up, we're doing these interviews through Zoom, which is how everyone's living their life these days. And I swear to you, we must have sat there and talked for like 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, conservatively, about all sorts of stuff. He is a guy, as I've told some of my buddies who asked, he is a guy who has this, um, for lack of a better term, aura about him. And it's kind of like gravity. You know, if you get close enough to the earth, its gravitational field starts to pull on you. Well, Matthew McConaughey is one of those guys with such a strong personality that if you're talking to him, he starts to influence you. I went back and listened to that interview and I was listening to it. Once we'd started the interview, I was already 30 minutes into talking to him. And so once we're starting the interview, you know, I noticed slight changes in my vocal tempo, slight changes in my diction. I may have let a lot of my natural Southern draw slip back in. And I'm thinking to myself, 
why am I doing that? Why do I sound like that? And then I realized it was his effect. In 30 minutes, it was his effect of just sitting there talking to him. It just loosens you up so much. And it's a mirror image of the character he plays in movies. And you know what I equated it to? The reason I think he's so effective is the same reason if you're a big pro wrestling fan of a generation ago like me, guys like Stone Cold Steve Austin were effective. It's because when you listen to Steve Austin do a real life interview, you say, oh, he sounds a lot like he did on TV on Monday nights. Oh, that's because he really wasn't playing a character. It was just him in real life, maybe with the volume turned up a little bit. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, kind of the same way. So, you know, movie stars, ironically, The Rock became one, but actors, movie stars, the best ones, you kind of come to realize the best ones are the best because they're not having to act a whole lot. They're kind of themselves and their natural personality just happens to seamlessly transfer to that medium. It was really fun though. We're still working on some more. Lula Bear, let's go back to the podcast review section. Thoughts on LSU hiring a kid fresh out of high school for the recruiting, editing, and graphics department. This is the big deal right now in college. Sports science is one. You read a lot about that. Number two, these graphics departments and these editing departments, boy, they have really beefed up their operation. LSU, no shocker here, sort of lapped the field this last year. If you saw, if you were on Twitter and whatnot on Saturdays and you saw those hype videos that they tweet out, incredible. In fact, I got involved in one. I didn't know it was coming. I was in Tuscaloosa for the LSU Alabama game. I was outside the stadium, or I think I was in an Uber actually. Uh, we, <laughs> I hope I can tell that story one day. It sounds mischievous, but it's not mischievous in like a hungover alcohol related type way even though we were in the backseat of an Uber early on a Saturday morning, it's a totally different set of mischievous for reasons that have nothing to do with abusing any kind of substance of any sort, but statute of limitations. So we got to keep that one suppressed for now. There are about five people who will listen to this, who know what I'm talking about and they need to lock it and put it in their pocket. So I'm in that Uber and my phone blows up and everyone's saying, look at this, look at this. And it's a link to a Twitter account. So I look and LSU's Twitter account has put out their hype video for the Alabama game. And it had a bunch of clips from CBS, ESPN, Fox, and then us. And when I say us, I mean me doing late kick independently on my YouTube channel, which I had just started five months earlier. And we had gotten some traction with LSU folks because we were way higher on them in the summer than most everyone else was outside of Baton Rouge. So they had taken notice. And sure enough, we had apparently woven ourselves into the fabric of Louisiana enough to where they put us right in there alongside the national types. So that's when I took notice really of that. Uh, but my thoughts are to answer the question, Lula Bear, I, I'm on board with it. I advocate for this where we work at 24 seven. You can either look at these sort of new media horizons and there are various horizons tiktok instagram's not new anymore but when it comes to the way that people recruit athletic departments the way they recruit the way that you correspond with players the way that you correspond with former players the way that you package them to sell to future prospects all kind of different ways that you can use new age media but the bottom line is you could have someone who's a 25 year veteran in the college football industry who knows nothing about that you got a 20-year-old who runs circles around them. Why would you ever hesitate in hiring that? First off, to be 
let's just be real. You don't have to pay them a whole lot. They really appreciate the opportunity, but you get really, really good results out of it too. So I think it's a win all around. Jason, podcast review. Weird. <laughs> I laugh so much because I don't, I print this off, but then I don't look over the questions again until I get to them. So it's like I'm seeing them for the first time. Weird question, Jason says, but where do media people park at games? I told you, ask me anything. I'll answer pretty much anything. Jason, the answer is all over the place. Sometimes, and I got to credit Georgia big time. Georgia is about the best in the world at giving you access, parking access right across the street from the stadium. Now, it is my belief, and this is my personal belief, it's my belief that we should, and when I say we, I say people being paid to cover the game, and you're going to get fed for free too, by the way, uh, we should have to park in another zip code if that's what it takes. But I'm happy we don't have to all the time. Now, some places like Auburn, they make you walk a pretty good distance, but they've got the golf cart to carry you to stadium. Now, you're on your own once the game's over. Alabama, um, it's behind the fraternity houses and sorority houses right there on University Boulevard. So it's not too long a walk, but Georgia's right across those railroad tracks from the, um, that freight entrance where there's a big hill. Georgia's stadium I love because it's built into a hill. It sort of, they utilize the topography of downtown Athens. And so you get good parking there. Clemson's another place where you got to park like a mile away, but golf carts there to take you right up. You go through a cemetery at Clemson, best I can remember. Yeah. I mean, I've only been there last year. Go through a cemetery to get to the media entrance there. But the best ones by far, uh, like if you cover a game in these newer venues, like where they had the Fiesta Bowl out in Glendale, you're, you park right across. I mean, you, you essentially can toss a rock and hit stadium. The Superdome in Louisiana, the Georgia Dome used to be this way. Um, Cowboy Stadium out in Arlington. Those parking garages, in some cases, are built into the arena itself. They're just underground. So, I mean, you're parking in a garage that's connected to the building. But that's a postseason setting. And by then, it's not all that hot anyway, so you wouldn't mind the walk outside. Good question, though. Interesting. Would not have thought of that one. Uh, Josh, in the podcast review section, some people in the Michigan fan base accuse Ohio State of sacrificing morals and integrity to recruit and win at the highest level. I find that shocking. Let's continue. Since you're from the South, how do folks down there perceive Ohio State? As an SEC program, that's how we perceive them. As, an, as SEC North, they are in the Northern Division of the Southeastern Conference by themselves. But I say that complimentary. I don't, I don't say that as a slight. Listen, anytime someone starts recruiting at a high level or anytime someone has sustained success and you're their rival and you don't match it, some people are going to be salty and they're going to toss out the accusations. Because you know what's a lot easier to do? It's a lot easier to hop on a message board and it's a lot easier to hop on Twitter and use your 100 whatever characters they give you to throw out accusations. And even though it would be a lot easier to just write, they're better than us right now. Technically, it would be easier to do that. Emotionally, you can't bring yourself to do it. Here's what I know about Ohio State. Talking to some people in the compliance world, you know what the complaint is at Ohio State, inside Ohio State? They think that they're too strict. Their compliance folks, they don't always see eye to eye with their football operations folks. And so there are a lot of things that Ohio State's recruiting staff and coaching staff would really love to be able to do that aren't illegal per se. They may 
get close to the edge of the cliff. You know, you may dip your toe in the water that, and when you say dip your toe in the water, you're talking about dipping your toe in the water of a pool that some programs are swimming in just to give you an idea. And Ohio state's compliance department will nix it. I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. I have spoken to people who have dealt with it at Ohio state. So they would argue, we wish we could loosen the reins here. We wish we could really do a lot more. So I'm, I can just tell you, I talk to a whole lot of people in the high school world and the college world every year about this subject, the subject of illegal benefits, the subject of paying players and whatnot. And every time it's the same, aside from the rare exception where, you know, you'll have an Ole Miss, just a rogue program that's doing 120 and a 55 zone. By and large, people are okay with what's going on. When I say okay, I don't mean everybody's doing everything exactly by the book. I'm not talking about Ohio State anymore. I'm making a very general statement here. But when you drive through, for instance, Atlanta, Georgia, which is about an hour north of where I grew up. I live in Nashville now. Same deal here. Some of these interstates, some of these seven and eight lane interstates, 75, 85 through downtown Atlanta, 65 through downtown Nashville, you get seven and eight lanes and the speed limit's 55 miles an hour. Do you really think they put that sign there to keep everybody going 55? Of course not. They keep it there to prevent you from going 90. The fact of the matter is everyone's doing 65. Everyone's doing 65 or 70 to keep up with the flow of traffic. Do you ever complain about that? As you're going 65, do you look at your window at someone going 68 and say, I hope a cop pulls that guy over? No. When the crotch rocket flies by you and your family in the back seat of your Volvo going 110, that's the guy that you want pulled over. And I know that this burst a lot of bubbles, but the vast majority of programs, that's what they're doing. They're doing 65 and a 55. They're doing 70, maybe 71, 72 and a 55. And no one really has that big a problem with it. And when that group of traffic sees someone fly by them doing 95, you know what collectively they make sure happens? They make sure the right people are notified. So the sport kind of polices itself, believe it or not. And I know a lot of you don't, but it kind of polices itself. Next up in the podcast review section, thoughts on Brock Vandergriff and how he compares to other elite quarterbacks coming out of high school, can he give Georgia the bump they need to win it all? Well, here's the question about Brock Vandergriff. High school competition is the question. He's from Prince Avenue Christian. It's not a high school you hear a whole lot. It's down in Georgia. I mean, he's athletic. He is a plus athlete. I was looking at our Barton Simmons, who had done the latest evaluation of him, and they labeled him as a plus athlete. He's 6'2", about 200 or so. And the way that I read his profile, you know, it's <laughs> careful here. I understand what I'm about to say. Let's understand what I'm not saying. It reads a lot like Joe Burrow's profile would read. What did I not say? Of course, what did I not say is I expect him to be the next Joe Burrow. What I think when you ask the question that you asked about, is he the kind of quarterback that can push Georgia over the hump? That is the kind of quarterback I think Kirby Smart's looking for. He's looking for a guy who is big and physical enough to take the pounding in the SEC. You got to be a good decision maker. You got to be good in the RPO game, which I think Vandergriff is or shows signs of really good quick release. But also, can he make enough plays? Can he improvise enough? Can he extend plays? How's his scramble ability? How is he able to throw on the run? 
And those are areas that at least our guys at 24-7 think that Vandergriff is really good at already at this early stage and can grow into a guy who does it at a very effective level at the college level or very effective way, whatever. You know what I want to say. So if that's the kind of quarterback George is getting, absolutely. He's the kind of quarterback that can push them over that hump. Keep in mind, it's not going to take a really hard push. They're already sort of there. So, yeah, I think he puts them in that conversation. I certainly do. Quick reminder, guys, this is not an ad read. As you can tell, this is still my voice. Five-star reviews, they are like gold to us. Keep delivering those. We get more traction. The more traction we get, the more energy and focus here at 24-7 goes into providing this podcast among other very similar products like this. And the more freedom that we get to be able to do whatever we want to do with Late Kick. And that includes, again, more content like this. So really, as much control as I would like to think I have over this, it's up to you. And it's really easy. doesn't cost you a thing. Subscribe to the podcast, five-star reviews, written reviews, and subscribing to the YouTube channel. Uh, all that combined costs you $0.00. Moving on, Jackson in the podcast review. Oh boy, here we go. Do you think Gus Malzahn has actually handed the offensive reins over to Chad Morris? If he hasn't, there's no reason for me to be optimistic about this season. Your words, not mine, Jackson. No, I don't. I'll just be honest with you. I don't. I think it could happen. Now, I'm not telling you anyone said anything to me one way or the other. In fact, I will tell you, Gus Malzahn told us all, did he not? That it's going to be Chad Morris's offense. Now, if you know, like I think we spoke about last week, the history of Malzahn at Auburn, it has been kind of like one of those carnival rides where it just goes up one way and then down and then up the other way. And what I mean by that is you got him running his offense and then he's going to He's going to hang up his clipboard, I think is the way he put it. And he's going to hand it over, and it's going to be Chip Lindsey's offense. But then it really wasn't. And then some of those things go sideways. You got a little meddling. And then it's his offense again. He's going to be the play caller. Remember the bowl game two years ago against Purdue? I'm taking over play calling. Boom. They behead Purdue on national TV in the bowl game. Everyone's excited. Malzahn's back in his comfort zone calling plays. We're going to be fine. Last season happens. I didn't think it was a bad year for him, but the record wasn't good enough for you. And so Chad Morris is fired at Arkansas, really close to Malzahn, really good with quarterbacks, really good play caller. And so Malzahn hires him. And there are a lot of people who would lead you to believe Chad Morris would not have stepped into this situation if he were not given certain guarantees. Now, I think that makes sense, but I also know the track record of Gus Malzahn. So Jackson, to say that I'm positive or I'm confident that these keys have just been tossed to Chad Morris in the parking lot and Malzahn, you know, just walked away. No, I can't tell you I'm confident in that. Jake, another podcast review. You hear how many podcast review questions we got this week? I'm telling you guys, you get in the podcast review, you give us a five-star review, and you put the question in the written review, they're getting answered. Jake says, you have been named emperor of the universe. You get to do whatever you want with the power five. Because apparently in this world, the first thing an emperor of the universe would do is worry about the postseason structure of college football. Anyway, Jake continues. What do you do with the Power Five? You give them their own playoff? Do you poach any G5 teams? Well, Jake, <clears throat> two ways to go here. My first inclination, and I think the first inclination of a lot of people is always, well, let's just align everything properly. Let's make everything perfectly symmetrical. 
and let's make sure that every conference has the same number of teams in the Power Five, even if we want them separate from the G5. Let's make sure every conference has the same number of teams. Every conference plays the same number of conference games. No independents out there. Everyone's in a conference, yada, yada, yada. And I know what the appeal there is. In some ways, I, I lean towards that appeal, but then I think, what do I like about college football? Why do I prefer it over the Sunday game? I watch pro ball, but I like college better. And I think a lot of it has to do with the nuance. So, certainly passion and tradition and pageantry has a lot to do with it too. But I love the nuance. I love that there are different ways of doing things and the sport is kind of this conglomeration of a bunch of different weirdly shaped conferences and weirdly shaped schedules and some teams aren't even in a conference and we all just kind of make it work and it's certainly not a perfectly rounded chunk of Play-Doh at the end of the year, but again, we make it work. So if I'm running Power 5, like you say, you guys certainly know it's going to be a Power 5 only playoff. I want a four-team, Power 5 only postseason. I want to meet you in the middle and give you what you want with your 18 playoff. You take the G5, and you can have any number of teams in the playoff format you want, and we can see how that works out. Because there'd still be haves and have-nots in the G5. And I think you'd see very quickly that relatively there would still be really good strengths of schedules and really poor strength of schedules there. And you'd be letting someone in that doesn't belong in. And you would see how that formula fails to deliver long-term. But do it on the G5's time. Don't do it on my time. I'm emperor of the P5. Did you not hear, Jake? I'm the emperor of the P5. I'm not granting automatic bids to conference champions. I'm not doing any of that. I'm largely keeping the system intact as it is. I'm just having a separate playoff. Um, don't know how I'm going to handle Notre Dame. You got to get back to me on that one, Jake. I would prefer they be in a conference, but I don't want to force them. You know what peer pressure does. I don't want to force them. If the We're moving on now. 73 Mustang podcast review still. If the, if the Pac-12 doesn't play this year, could networks space out kickoff times? to 9 and 10 p.m. Eastern for the other conferences like the SEC and the Big Ten? No, I don't think so at all. Schedules are about two things. They're about windows and inventory. Prime time, the 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern kickoff, that's the most valuable piece of real estate. I've believed in the last couple of years, people have realized that due to oversaturation in the prime time slot, the 3.30 window has become really underrated, but even so, it's the number two window. And then the noon window, Eastern, is the number three window. And those late kickoffs, those 10, 11 o'clock kickoffs, that's the fourth window in terms of desirability. Under no circumstances, just because the Pac-12 product didn't exist this year, would a TV executive say, hey, this game, this, this Ole Miss-Arkansas game that we were going to play at 12.20 on SEC Network, let's move that to ESPN. Let's put it on at 10.45 Eastern. 945 local kickoff. No, I don't think that would happen at all. Uh, just because those slots would be available, no. And it's a lot more complicated than that, but on the surface, no, I don't think that's the way that would work. Bryce, in the podcast review, what is the main difference that makes up the gap between Michigan and Ohio State? Bryce, we actually covered this pretty long form on Late Kick Live, and you can go find that video on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It's pretty fresh within the last couple of shows, but roster, that's it. I don't think we need to go any deeper than that. If you want to throw out something else, it's all connected. If you want to throw out, well, recruiting's been poor. Yeah, well, that provides you with a poor roster. I don't think their recruiting's been poor. 
think we're going to address that in a second. But development, I mean, all that leads to what roster you have. The staff, they're responsible for recruiting and developing your roster. The end result, we, we still arrive at the same thing. It's roster. You got a gap between you and the boys in Columbus. You got to close it. Until you do, moot point. Andrew, podcast review. How well do you think North Dakota State would do playing in the Pac-12? Short-term, very competitive. Long-term, poorly. Now, of course, what we have to do here is acknowledge if North Dakota State were in the Pac-12, they would have much better financial resources than they currently do. Uh, Geographically, well, I mean, if they're in the Pac-12, they're not in North Dakota, you wouldn't think. So this is pure hypothetical land at this point. But what would happen is the long-term wear and tear of playing even a lower tier power five conference schedule right now. And that's what the PAC 12 is. It would still cumulatively have an effect on you. You got to understand something. A lot of you are NASCAR fans. I used to watch NASCAR a lot. There is a big difference in winning the pole at the Coca-Cola 600 versus winning the Coca-Cola 600 to take the pole just means you had the fastest qualifying time. And that means you get to start number one. So technically, you could turn off the TV on Saturday and you could go home, load your hauler up and say, well, we proved that we had the fastest car here this weekend. Let's take it to the house. Let's get ready for next week. Or you could have everyone else yell at you, no, 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 you got to come run the race now. And when you run the race, fastest car doesn't always win because you got 41. I think the field's still 42 cars something like that. So you got a bunch of other cars around you, a bunch of other terrible things can happen. I mean, you could have, I've seen before paper plates fly out of the stands and get caught on the fronts of cars and mess up the air intake. And they got to roll into pit road and lose a lap to take a paper plate off the front of the car. Point being, when you race, when you put yourself in the arena, you're exposing yourself to all sorts of terrible things happening to where you get knocked out of the race, 56 laps in and you're done for the day. And you're riding home thinking, but we had the fastest car. Yep, you may have. Just like North Dakota State could beat Oregon State tomorrow if they played. I'd probably pick them to win over Oregon State tomorrow. What happens when you just keep playing these Power 5 teams with these Power 5 rosters? Because even the 4 and 8 teams have kids that were good enough to get D1 scholarships. And collectively, it starts to take a toll on your roster. And you realize At that FCS level, even at the top level of FCS, you may have some magical years or a couple of year stretches where your frontline guys are good enough to hang with some of the big boys. Your second string at the FCS level will never be good enough to do that. And that would be exposed pretty quickly. If you had an FCS team that consistently played even a lower tier power five conference schedule, you'd find that out pretty quickly. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. (laughs) Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on here. That's where we are. Okay. Andrew, podcast review. How well? Oh, no, we just read that one. Sorry, Andrew. Got to flip my pages here. Again, you hear the technical advancement cannot be overstated. 
I am currently talking in my bedroom in my apartment into a blanket that I have hung from two open doors. My podcast mic is hooked with a boom arm to my nightstand. And I have seven printed out pieces of paper in front of me. So again, resources, the likes of which you cannot even imagine. Will, in the YouTube comments section, what does Mac Brown in North Carolina need to do to consistently win the Coastal and meet Clemson in the ACC championship game? Well, consistent is the key word here. You've got to keep recruiting like you have done this cycle. Keep that quarterback situation stable, which I think it will be. They're set up very well there for years to come, especially if Drake May pans out. He talked about coaching changes here. Will, that's interesting because here's how you build a program. This is the philosophy some head coaches have. You put together a staff of recruiters to build your roster, and then you start an overhaul process in years two, three, and four where you start to value X's and O's, strategery, game day decision-making, game plan install. You start to value those things more than just can you walk into a living room and land a four-star linebacker. Does Mac Brown think he needs to do that? I don't know, but it'll be interesting to watch that. It's just consistency. Um, it, won't, it won't hurt you if the rest of the conference lays down like it has been, but I don't know if that's realistic over a five-year period. But if you got quarterback figured out and you can recruit well, and you, more importantly, I think, relative to maybe some of these other programs, you have a university that's behind you. The financial backing's there. We talked about the $25 million single donor gift that was given last week. So they're not going to hurt for a lot of the resources there. Nikayla on YouTube, what are your thoughts on each conference championship? Who will win and why? Which conference could pull an Alabama with the loss or no entry to the conference championship, but still making the playoff? Well, um, clearly we are not ready to make conference championship predictions yet, but I will tell you this, a team I've looked at a lot this week that's caught my eye is Penn State. Penn State is a team this year. If you were asking me, as Nikayla just did, find a team out there that could make the playoff without making their conference championship game. It's Penn State. If their lone loss would be a close home loss to Ohio State, or let's say they go to Michigan and lose close and they beat Ohio State. Let's say that happens. Let's say they go to Virginia Tech early in the year, which they do this year, and they lose some freak early season game. They're favored by 14 points in, but then they get the ship righted and they go undefeated in their conference. I guess they go to the Big Ten championship game at that point. So that's a bad example. Tani, don't edit that out. I deserve to be laughed at. Uh, I do think Penn State is that team, though. If we're looking at one outside, the SEC is always where you look. But outside the SEC, I would say keep an eye on Penn State. YouTube comment here. Do you think Florida will have a better or, God forbid, worse run game than last year? And do you think the run game is going to be crucial for Florida to make or close the gap from being a good offense to a great offense to maybe an elite offense? Big question for me here, and that is the Florida Gator run game. Damian Pierce will be their workhorse this year probably, and I think that he is a solid option. Behind him, they picked up Lingard from, I believe, Miami. That's a pivotal piece. That's one of the most important pieces in the SEC this year. If he pans out, and he's a guy, if he does pan out, he gives them that more explosive element, little change of pace element at running back. You look past him, is Malik Davis, I think, is listed as their number three. Is that a guy I can count on? Beyond him, 
Is there a stable of running backs here? And here's what I'm asking for. If they're healthy all year, irrelevant. What happens if Damian Pierce is nicked up? What, what if you're watching them play Tennessee early first quarter, he limps over to the sideline? What proven does Florida have in the backfield? What do you really feel like you can go to war with in the backfield if Pierce is not there? Are you shaking your head? Are you shrugging? Or are you overly optimistic? I mean, are you counting on the names I just mentioned? Do you know about a guy I don't know about? Now, I think it'll be maybe a more complimentary facet to their offense this year than maybe in years past because of the way that they'll be able to do things with Kyle Trask. I think that. I'm pretty confident in saying that, so we'll see. Ethan, YouTube. Why is nobody talking about Wisconsin as a legit Big Ten contender the same way people talk about Penn State? They don't have the flashy recruits like other teams, but they have a solid coach, a potentially elite quarterback in Graham Mertz, and they have a traditionally great offensive and defensive line. Under Mertz, what is the ceiling for Wisconsin? Now, you guys who are not Wisconsin football fans, you're in the middle of the offseason. The last thing on your mind is probably it may not even be your own team, much less a team outside of your immediate line of sight. So what's happening in Wisconsin is fascinating here. You Wisconsin Badger fans know what I'm talking about. Jack Doan, I think, has been the starter at quarterback there since 1996. And so they just went to the Rose Bowl last year. They were competitive. They had a good year. In fact, Doan had probably quite a few passing records that he set last year or really good numbers he put up that just flew under the radar. Because you are right, Ethan. Wisconsin as a program, I think, has flown under the radar a little while. There's some big shadows that they're in up there. But here's what's happening at Wisconsin. A lot of them want Graham Mertz to start. He, I think, will be a redshirt freshman this year. He is a guy who really personifies that old axiom of the most popular player in your program is the backup quarterback. That's really the case, especially now that Jonathan Taylor's gone. That is really the case at Wisconsin. They are all in. A vast majority of Badger fans that I've heard from are all in on the idea that they've got maybe a more filtered version of the the Jalen Hurts Tua situation where Tua was on the bench, but Alabama insiders kept telling you, hey, he's better than Jalen Hurts. If he gets a shot, if he ever gets a shot, he'll take that job. They think they have that there. Um, I just, man, I, I'm not always a believer that just because you're the incumbent, you deserve the job. And I don't know Wisconsin football as well as you guys do. This is one of those situations, just like with Tua and Hurts. They're going to be people close to the Wisconsin program who know what they're talking about. And if, if those reliable people are telling me and telling you, Mertz is the guy, man. We have hit our ceiling with Doan. He's good, and that's all he'll ever be. And our ceiling is higher than just good with this redshirt freshman. I'm all for it. But you know who else has to be all for it? I think you know the answer to this. Yeah, that head coach you're talking about there, Paul Christ, he's got to be all for it too. Now, just as much as you could have one of those Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga Vailoa deals, you also could have one of those, to come back to a situation I'm familiar with, Joey Gatewood, Bo Nix deals. And that was the Auburn situation last year where a lot of folks were convinced since Gatewood had the measurables of Cam Newton, he was their next Cam Newton. And he wasn't. And he did not win the job. And Bo Nix ended up starting and Gatewood transferred to Kentucky. And since Auburn didn't go undefeated and win a national championship last year, you have people saying, see, see, we should have started Gatewood. No, you shouldn't. He made the right decision. And let me tell you what else. Paul Christ is going to make the right decision this year, too. 
he's going to make the decision to start the guy who gives them the best chance to win. Now, you may watch Graham Mertz and you may hear reviews from what he does in closed scrimmages. And you may say, why aren't we starting that guy that gives us more potential? Well, what Paul Christ is looking for is not what a guy can do. He's not looking for a guy that can do it right. What they want at quarterback is a guy who has repped it so much that he can't do it wrong or you get as close to that as possible. And if they believe that's Doan, then they're going with Doan. And if not, they'll go with Mertz. Now, I'm as curious as you guys are. Maybe not quite as curious, but I am curious. So I'll be watching that. Uh, let's continue. Oh, man, we made it through another page. All right. Jared, last year, particularly before the SEC championship game with LSU, you pointed out that as high as Georgia's defense was being touted and ranked, their pass rush was a major weakness that would end up hurting them. Well, you were 100% correct. Do you think that's an issue that's improved this year? If so, which players do you think are capable of improving the pass rush? Jared. Yes, I do, Jared. I do think that. Here are three names that won't be involved all that much in the pass rush from your front seven that are going to have a lot to do with how good your pass rush is. Stokes, Campbell, LeCount. You know the names. Those are names. If you've watched Eric Stokes, if you've watched Tyson Campbell, those are some of the best corners in America. They were last year. They will certainly be this year. And they got other one. They got several of them actually behind these names. I don't need to read you Georgia's defensive depth chart, but guys that they've recruited, Nolan Smith most notably, but just look at the body, the physical makeup of like um, uh, Jermaine Johnson. Quay Walker's another really good one. Quay Walker's a guy that they would not have recruited as an inside linebacker five years ago that is one now. They are shifting towards being more athletic up front. All that's done with pass rush in mind. I know they have been very obsessed about it for two years, but see, Jordan Davis, guys like that, they're big cloggers in the interior. Those are guys that, you know, if they're going to maximize that pass rush ability, those are guys that have to be able to get a push inside too. And it's a, that's a tough job to be able to stop the run against some of the more physical teams that you're going to play, but also be a three-down player, which is what they ultimately want out of guys like Davis as they get further into their careers. They want as many three-down guys as possible. It's a tough chore. That's a really tough chore. But I know that they're very high on Davis. Like They think that he, among others, could, be, uh, could fit that bill. And if they do, yeah, I think they'll be improved pass rush this year and that coverage in the secondary will go a long way in making them look really good dakota on youtube been having some discussions with my friends we've come to the conclusion that bama versus lsu could potentially change the power of the sec west that makes it more important than last year's game in a sense of proving lsu could do it versus showing it can be done back to back one is a hole in the ship two becomes reputation that's my question do you agree or do you think Alabama would just shrug off another loss to LSU? No, they wouldn't shrug off another loss to LSU. There is no shame in getting beat by five points by Joe Burrow and that crew they had last year, all-time college football team, and you had your quarterback rehabbing from injury, fighting to even be able to play in the game, and it's, it's competitive, and it, you, you're, just, you're the second-best team on the field that day. There's no shame in that. You lose to him two years in a row, yeah, there'd be problems there. There would be problems. Now, you're talking about this year, last year and this year. Think about this. You know, this almost happened. I was thinking back in 2011 
I was at that game, that game of the century, the nine to six game, which I thought was great. And some of you who wanted to watch video games all day, you thought it was terrible, but I've never seen defensive football played at that level before. 42 or 43 players on those rosters went on to be drafted in the NFL. But yeah, I'm sure the offenses were just terrible. Hung 40 on like everyone else. Both of them did all year, but I'm sure both of those offenses were terrible. So anyway, sarcasm. So anyway, but think about this. LSU went into Tuscaloosa and won that game that year. Now they meet again in the national championship game, which was the right matchup. What if LSU would have won that one? You ever think about that? How different would history have viewed Nick Saban? And if you'll remember the following year, even though LSU got beat in the national championship game, they're in Baton Rouge the following year. LSU's got Bama on the ropes again. That was the Yeldon screen pass, the McCarran to Yeldon with under a minute to go. Alabama takes the lead. They almost beat him again the next year. That's why I was never a believer that Alabama had just been dominating LSU. They ran off a string of games. They had a really impressive winning streak. Guys, they weren't beating them by four touchdowns every year. I mean, there was there were multiple games there where fractions of an inch one way or the other – I mean, by the width of a piece of paper, Alabama's winning some of those games. Now, that's all that matters is winning the game. But there's a big difference in having an edge in a rivalry versus dominating a rivalry. Alabama had not dominated LSU. And you, know, you want to know something? They didn't think they had either. They knew that they were better. They knew that cumulatively all the work and all the effort that they were putting in made them that much better, just those margins better on game day. They were building their entire program to compete against LSU. They viewed LSU as the biggest challenge in America to them staying where they wanted to be every single year. That was the most important game in college football. They knew it while everyone else, maybe outside in the periphery wants to talk iron bowl, iron bowl. Iron. It was about LSU has been for a decade plus for Alabama. Now that's who they have always built to stop. That's who they've built to be able to beat. That's always been the case. So they, if they knew they were dominating LSU, they wouldn't have been building with them in mind anymore. When's the last time Alabama built a team to stop Arkansas? They dominate Arkansas. They've dominated Mississippi State. They haven't dominated LSU. They beat them consecutively a lot of times. Some of them were more convincing than others. Some of them were back and forth, 51%, 49% type deals. I mean, there are a couple of games Bama won there where they probably don't win those games 50 or more percent of the time. Of course, the only one that matters is the one they play. But I get a little worked up sometimes when people say, oh, Alabama just dominated LSU for that string of years. No, no Ohio State's dominating Michigan right now. That, you want to see what dominance looks like? Choosing to cut off the engines when you get over 50 points against your biggest right, that is dominance. That's not quite what Bama was doing to LSU. Uh, let's see. Okay, moving on. Rusty, are profitability of name, image, and likenesses factoring into the recruitment of high-profile players? Every single one of them, Rusty. Every single one of them. That's as simple as I can make it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Every single one of them. Jay Ferg, in the email inbox, I noticed you said Tennessee has to win one of their four biggest games this year, Oklahoma, Florida, Alabama, Georgia. Do you think Tennessee will actually win one of those games? Which one do you think Tennessee will have the best shot at in those four? Yes, I believe they'll win one of them. If I were to put the over-under on this, I would say one and a half is the over-under. And then I wouldn't choose right now. Yeah, I think they'll win one of them. In order of 
relatively easiest to most difficult. I would say the Florida game is the one they got the best shot at, followed by Oklahoma, followed by Georgia, followed by Alabama. That's something we'll talk a lot more about as the season gets closer. Cat Train in the email inbox. The Big 12 has an interesting mix of new coaches. Neil Brown at West Virginia. I'm going to be doing something with Neil Brown soon, actually. Stay tuned for that. Chris Kleiman at Kansas State, Les Miles at Kansas, and Dave Aranda at Baylor. Oklahoma is dominant. That's not likely to change. But which out of those four new head coaches are best equipped to make a run in the Big 12? I think it's Dave Aranda. The reason I think it's Dave Aranda is because I think that a lot of the experiment that Matt Campbell has run at Iowa State could be duplicated at Baylor. Not saying that they're identical head coaches or even in their approach, they're identical. But I think that you and I could both agree, Iowa State plays a different brand of football by necessity than Oklahoma State or Oklahoma. And they've been effective. And the reason I think is because people have become so conditioned and so calibrated to dealing with pinball machine offenses every week in the Big 12, it doesn't really take you by surprise anymore. What takes you by surprise is when a team is really physical and when a team really invests 110% defensively. And I think that's what a Dave Aranda team could do. Now, here's the advantage he has. He is in Waco, Texas. He's got access to a lot more of that East Texas talent. and this is no knock on the athletes they produce out of Iowa, but there aren't many in Iowa. So I look at what Matt Campbell's done in building a really steady program up there. And I just wonder if you infuse a little bit more talent into that product, could that be what Dave Aranda builds at Baylor? We will see. Steven in the email inbox on your YouTube video, I watched recently, you said the gap between Ohio state and Michigan comes down to roster. Hey, I did say that. I disagree. Well, thanks Steven. I disagree. The word you should use is development. Harbaugh has consistently had good recruits, but completely fails to develop them. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I disagree with that. I went back and I looked and he has had good recruiting classes. That's where I'd stop. They haven't recruited great. They've recruited good to very good. Over the past one, two, three, four, five, over the past six years, here's where they finished in the 24-7 sports team recruiting rankings. 37th. Now, obviously, that's the year that they took over and they had like two minutes to put a class together. Then they had two top 10 classes, number eight and number five. That's really good recruiting. Number 22 the following year, number eight the year after that, and number 14 the year after that. What have they done with those players? Well, they've had 15 of them drafted in the past two years. They've had three first rounders in the past two years. They've had six go in the top three rounds. Steven, that is exactly what I would expect someone to do who has recruited, what would that average be? They've recruited about on average a number 10 class, somewhere around there, about, about 8 to 12 on average. That's exactly what I would expect that kind, of, that kind of program, that kind of recruiting effort to do. I don't think they've underdeveloped players at all. I just There is no top three class they've recruited here. And then you think to yourself how Ohio State's there every year, Alabama's there every year. Clemson's up there now, haven't been every year, but they will be from here moving forward. I mean, that is the gap. I don't know how much clearer you can make this. That is the gap. Chris, in the email inbox, in recent shows, you mentioned several times how Tennessee needs a program-defining win in 2020 against one of the big four opponents. We just talked about that, actually. That reminds me of when Mississippi State went into LSU with Dak Prescott, beat the crap out of LSU for the first time in 20 years, 
definitely put him on a nice trajectory until Mullen left. What would a program-defining win for Arkansas Ole Miss or Mississippi State look like? Are these schools even in position to have one of those in 2020? I think that, boy, it's hard to see. because I, I mean, it's obvious who they would come against. They would come against Bama, LSU, um, I don't know if any of those teams played Georgia this year. Ole Miss plays Florida, I think. You know, that would be a good one. I believe that Mississippi State and Ole Miss would probably be in better position only because I believe that they have head coaches and they have systems that are being installed this year that could be the proverbial stun gun to the neck of an opponent. You don't really fully know what to expect. You got John Rice Plumley at Ole Miss, and you've I don't know if people realize that they have imported K.J. Costello at Mississippi State, the recent Stanford quarterback transfer. It's not that you expect them to have an offensive product that lights the world on fire. It's just that if they did, you could reasonably say, well, crazier things have happened. And so those would be the ones that I'd look at, and we know who they got to beat for the program-defining win. Bryce in the email inbox. Would you consider Donovan Edwards an elite talent that Michigan desperately needs, even though he's a running back? What are the odds they land him? I think Michigan is the leader. This is a four-star running back from the state of Michigan. I don't know that this is a guy that Michigan has to have one way or the other. I don't think any program in America is hinging on the recruitment and commitment of a running back. When's the last? Well, let me ask you this. When is the last time you watched Michigan? And you said in retrospect, after they lost a game, or at the end of the year, well, if we would have had one more four-star running back, this entire season would have been different. Is that what you sit there and think? Because I think about quarterback. That's what I've thought. I've thought about offensive line. I've thought about getting those pieces around the running back position fixed, ironically. Jeffrey on Twitter, given how the big game – or oh, excuse me. Let me rephrase this. Tony, you can edit that one out if you want to. Or leave it in. I don't care. Jeffrey on Twitter asks – Given how big the game was and how it ended, why is Georgia-Alabama from 2017 for the national title not considered the greatest college football game of all time? Recency. That's why, Jeffrey. College football, when they talk about the greatest of all time, it's kind of like baseball. People are really hesitant to mess with the romanticism and history of the game. Now, what I mean by that is if Babe Ruth showed up to play for the Red Sox today, Babe Ruth wouldn't be viewed the same way we view Babe Ruth from when he actually played in the 20s. So there's a lot of romanticism, and it's really hard to get someone who's covered the sport for 40-plus years to watch something and right afterwards say, yep, that's the best fill-in-the-blank I've ever seen. I believe it is the best game. When you talk about – I mean, the the comparison is 05 Rose Bowl, USC-Texas, right? The comparison is what's at stake? A national championship was at stake. Think about this, though. Now, if you're from Oregon, it may not have hit you like it did me. you got to picture me. I grew up in, again, Harris County, Georgia. That county borders the Chattahoochee River. The Chattahoochee River splits Georgia and Alabama. I grew up as on the border as I possibly could between those two programs. I grew up with a ton of Bama fans, ton of Georgia buddies, I've been in that, immersed in those two my whole life, along with Auburn. Those are the three programs I was the closest to. Do you understand what it was like? It was one of those, they're going to talk about this for a thousand years type deals. When you see Georgia versus Alabama for an SEC championship, it's a big deal. For a national championship, again, it's like when you watch the movie Troy. 
And Achilles says, oh, they'll be talking about this war for a thousand years. That's kind of the way people viewed that game down there. And remember this, the previous year's SEC Offensive Player of the Year, who is 26 and 26-2 as a starter at quarterback, is benched at halftime for a dude who has not played meaningful action all year. And Bama goes from being shut out at halftime to coming back and winning the game in overtime, a walk-off touchdown to win a national championship game with a true freshman backup quarterback. Find me something that's happened that is more noteworthy than that. What game is better than that? What element, let me ask it this way, did that game lack that another game had in more abundant supply? I don't know. Here's the only thing I didn't like about that setup. That was a national championship game. It was the week after playoffs or the semifinal games, obviously. And what I didn't like is they gave six days for the buildup. It wasn't a two-week deal. You had the games, and then you had seven days between the semifinals and the national championship game, which is insane. Because if you'll remember, it was Georgia over Oklahoma in a classic Rose Bowl. It was Bama over Clemson in that redemption game. Clemson had beaten Bama the fall, or the previous year. And so you had this month buildup to those big matchups. And then it's like you got to get over those in 24 hours and get ready for a national championship. And I can remember thinking, man, it, I feel numb. I'd been, I'd been in New Orleans covering the uh, Sugar Bowl down there, and Bama beats Clemson. And it's like – are you serious? They're about to play a game of this magnitude in six days? That's all I didn't like about it. Otherwise, Jeffrey, I agree with you. I do view it as the biggest one I've ever seen. I'll say that. Christian, email inbox. Do you think Luke Fickle and Cincinnati can replicate what Central Florida did, but for a much longer period of time? If so, do you think it could result in a playoff appearance before Fickle is snatched up by a Power 5 school. Yes, I believe they could border on that playoff conversation. I don't believe they can sustain any kind of run, only because of what you said, Christian. I mean, if they're sustaining a run like that, it means they're going undefeated every year or one loss every year. And if they're doing that, you know as well as I do, it's only a matter of time before Fickle's grabbing a major job somewhere. So their success would be Ultimately, the price that they had to pay and the price that they would pay is losing the coach that was responsible for the success. And I think Fickle's going to tear it up there as long as he is there. It's, he, he is not long for Cincinnati. I really don't believe he is. And that's a compliment to him and a compliment to Cincinnati football. Josh in the email inbox, huge Florida fan. I'm predicting they'll win the SEC this year. Now listen to this breakdown, folks. Josh continues. Love the name, by the way. Josh continues. LSU lost Joe Burrow and Joe Brady. Georgia lost Jake Fromm and Swift. Alabama lost Tua and a bunch of others. Ole Miss has Lane Kiffin. Laughable, he says in parentheses. Mississippi State, Kentucky, Vandy, Tennessee, Missouri. They haven't made any noise in years. We just eliminated half the conference. The only team I can see being a problem is Texas A&M. The Florida Gators have a great quarterback, a great squad. Kyle Trask will be in the Heisman conversation. We got a lot of running backs, a phenomenal coach who's turned our program around. Who can upset Florida this year? Well, Josh, I like the optimism, buddy. And I think that Florida's got about as good a shot as anyone to win the East. Now, I would, in fact, I don't know where I'm ready to lean yet on that. And luckily, it's May as we sit here and record. I will say, and let me just caution you ever so slightly, you got a quality squad coming back. 
you are not without holes. I mean, you just kind of glossed over. We got a lot of running backs. Who? We just mentioned that earlier in this podcast. Damian Pearson, who? I know the glass half full mentality would lead you to expect best case from everyone. But that's never what happens. Even for teams who win a championship, that's not really what happens. So you're going to have some holes to fill there as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you play Texas A&M on a neutral field today, that point spreads under six either way. Georgia, ditto. Alabama, you'd be a decided underdog against. LSU, very close to pick them. I would imagine, if not slightly leaned towards LSU, I'm talking about point spread here. I'm not talking about anything else. Now, a point spread doesn't determine a game. But what I'm saying is, I'm just kind of giving you the perspective of maybe the odds makers in Vegas of how they view Florida. You asked me who could upset Florida. Um, Josh, it would be an upset for Florida to beat a couple of these teams that you listed. Now, they can do it. They can certainly do it. But I do find it fascinating you viewed A&M as a bigger threat than Alabama. That's, that's fascinating. Maybe you know something I don't. We'll see. All right, I saved this one for towards the end. So I wanted to break this one down a little bit. Ryan on Twitter. Now, I encourage you guys to make your questions as succinct as possible. Ryan just took that and balled it up and threw it out the window. But he delivered something that's good, so let's work through it. Ryan says, I agree the playoffs should stay at four teams. I'm on the fence about auto bids, sort of depending on whether it gets extended six or eight. Where I disagree is when you've talked about best teams and downplaying undefeated seasons. All right, now a lot of you share this sentiment, so you're going to speak vicariously through Ryan here. First, on the best team argument, let's go to 2018. I think Georgia in that year is a perfect example of this. I think most would agree that Georgia was just as good, if not better, than Oklahoma. They were probably better than Notre Dame, too. I'm curious whether you thought Georgia should have gotten in at the time. I personally didn't, and I still don't think they should have made the playoff. They had their shot at Alabama. They didn't win. Tag that onto the LSU loss, and I think they deserve to be out. All right, let's pause there. No, I didn't think Georgia deserved to be in in 2018, but it didn't have anything to do with them having their shot against Alabama. That's not the way the playoff works. You know, the playoff is another world to me. You have the regular season and your conference championship games, and then everyone just has a body of work. That's it. You have a body of work. There is no, okay, well, Alabama's in the playoff. If you played Alabama and you didn't beat them, you're automatically out because you already got your shot. Let's give someone else a shot. No. It's about measuring your resume. I don't care if you played Alabama twice and lost to them by two points each time. If those are the only two losses on your resume and there aren't three resumes better than yours, you're coming in and you may get a third shot at Alabama. Having said that, I did not believe Georgia belonged in that year, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the LSU game you mentioned. They got blown out by LSU. They didn't lose narrowly. They got blown out. And what happened was we got to the end of the year And this is where it is not merely a power rating game with me. You're going to go on to mention later in this point about power versus merit. Well, that's what it's about here. Georgia, if I'm going to power rate that team that year, you know, if someone had a gun to each of our heads at the end of the season and Georgia was going to play Notre Dame, just neutral field, straight up, they're going to play him. Who would we have picked? You and I both probably picked Georgia to win the game. But yet we both agree Notre Dame should have made the playoff, which they did. That was the Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Oklahoma. That was the one through four. Well, that's the merit. I'm telling you right now, I think Georgia was one of the four most powerful teams that year, but I don't think that they were 
one of the four most deserving. So I have plenty of room for merit in my discussion here. Maybe if not for the exact reasons you have, but we still align there. So then we move on. You disagree with the statement, you're only as good as your record says you are. While I see where you're coming from, I think it gets too subjective if you remove it. Obviously, everything is affected by a team schedule, but if you truly just go best four teams, I think you'll end up penciling in Bama, Ohio State, Clemson, and the SEC number two, unless they have huge down seasons. Uh, yeah, that could happen. Those, I don't know if you've noticed, are really good teams every year. But again, what I just told you is I'm not automatically putting in the teams that have had the highest average recruiting rankings the last four years and have the best rosters. That's power rating. I'm involving merit. I'm absolutely involving merit. But even as I do that, you better believe with my system, Alabama's going to have a whole lot more likely chance of making the playoff in a given year than South Carolina is. They're better. I know in any given year they're going to be better. So, yeah, it's, it's likely they're going to be involved there. Clemson, it's highly likely they're going to be involved. It's not a certainty. All right, he continues. Sorry for rambling, but I feel like you give the teams who are expected to be top five year in and year out an added and unneeded advantage. Maybe that becomes less of a problem in an extended playoff anyway. No, it doesn't. No, I'm, I'm still going to lean same teams. You're just going to put a few more in, unfortunately. But see, Ryan said the thing about record here, and what I've said about record is in the NFL, I believe in the saying, you are what your record says you are. That's pro ball. The overall equality of strength of schedule is in another galaxy compared to the difference in the strength of schedule, depending on which conference you're playing in. So you are not always what your record says you are in college. Ryan continues. Also, I disagree with you downplaying a 13-0 regular season conference champ. I'm not saying that you can't have a 12-1 or 11-1 team ranked higher than an unbeaten team, but you can't leave them out. Ryan, yeah, I certainly can leave them out. Depending on what that 13 wins consist of, you better believe I can leave them out. And brother, let me go this far. There are some two lost teams I would put in over some undefeated teams. Now, let me get to the uh, argument you're about to make. Oregon should not be punished for the Pac-12 being terrible. Ryan, there is no scenario on God's green earth where I see Oregon going 13-0 and being left out of a playoff. I couldn't even envision me arguing for that. I'm talking about G5 teams. 99% of the time, when I'm talking about an undefeated team potentially being left out, I'm talking about G5 teams. You continue. All you can do is win the games you have on your schedule. That's right, Ryan. It's not your fault. It's not the player's fault. It's not the sophomore right guard's fault. If you play everybody that you're supposed to play and none of them are better than the number 70 team in the country, that's not your fault. But it's not Clemson's fault. It's not Oklahoma's fault. What are they supposed to do? Go 10-2 and two with even with their two losses, them having six wins better than your best win, but kind of step to the side and say, well, 13-0, and 0, can't leave them out. You better believe I can leave them out. And I gladly do it. Well, not gladly. I don't like to see people cry, but Listen, man, 13-0 uh, is not always deserving. Where do you draw the line, by the way? If, everyone, if some people are in agreement that 13-0 should be just an automatic pass to the playoff no matter what, what if I, what if I played 13 high school teams? I'm 13-0. Some of you guys tell me that's the hardest thing in sports to do. Go 13-0. I'm telling you that's garbage. 
I'm telling you, there are 15 Power 5 programs who in any given year could run the slate of some of these G5 schedules. I'm telling you there are no G5 teams who could go 11-1 and against the schedule that South Carolina just played last year. None. Zero. I'm telling you there are no G5 teams out there that are going 11-1. and Forget about undefeated. 11-1 and against A&M's schedule last year. None of them. I'm telling you, A&M would be favored 12 out of 12 in some of these G5 schedules. That doesn't mean they'd win them all, but it does mean that they would have a high likelihood of going undefeated. A&M was like a seven or eight win team last year. You know what the only difference was? The conference they played in. Don't tell me 13-0 is 13-0. No, it's not. No, it's not at all. In college, at least. Oh, I'm sweating. The thermometer says 72 in here. I'm sweating. Bogdan on Twitter how big is the gap for you between college football and the NFL and why? Uh, you ever been to the Grand Canyon, Bogdan? Well, it's not nearly that small. It's a lot bigger than that. Here's why. I know for a fact, every Sunday when I watch an NFL team play, the worst player on that roster is an NFL player. Not only an NFL caliber player, not only did he get drafted or signed, he actually made all the cuts and he is on the 52-man roster. You know how good you have to be to do that? There is no college football team on planet Earth that has any kind of depth like that, first off. Secondly, the most talented teams. LSU won the national championship last year. And LSU, you could make an argument, was the best college football team of all time. If not, you could make an argument they're one of. There are offensive linemen on LSU's team last year that won't play in the NFL. Now, there are some defensive players from last year's team that won't even play in the NFL. Do you know, I want you to think about this for a second. If you have a, a team that's loaded, and let's say you're like Alabama or someone, and you got a future first rounder at quarterback, and you got a couple of stalwarts, future first and second rounder at left tackle, you got studs in the backfield, you got three or four first round potential guys at wide out, and your defense is littered with guys, you got seven guys are going to be top four round draft picks. Do you know what still I just said? I just said you got three or four players on offense and you got two or three on defense that are not pro caliber players. You know what happens if you face an NFL team and you got a right guard that does not have pro potential? Do you know what an NFL defensive front would do to a center that doesn't have pro ability? I don't think it would be very embarrassing. Let me just tell you that. It would be embarrassing. They would reduce the game to a single-page playbook. It would look like child abuse. That's what it would look like. And I know a lot of you guys think because a team runs up the score every week and their margins are so wide and they got so many guys in Mel Kuyper's mock draft and look at all of these player ratings spiking on the video game. That was, you know, yesteryear. You think, could it be? Could it be? No. No. Let me save you some time. Oh, and 16 teams. Even then, no, 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 no. Riley on Twitter, you've been talking about evaluating programs to the top tier and how to do that. Elevating, that's what he meant. You meant elevating Tennessee, Michigan, Penn State to the top tier. But if more programs become top tier, wouldn't some have to come down? I guess my question is, how many top tier programs can there be? I would say somewhere between two and five normally is what you have, Riley, in the game. So you're right, yeah, by default. It is a zero-sum game. There are only so many games out there to win. There are only so many recruits out there to be had. So you can't have 15 elite programs, obviously. 
Usually what you're going to see is two to five, but I can't tell you how many that is per conference because sometimes they tend to form in clusters because what happens is you get one elite team and they start collectively raising the standards and performance of everyone around them. And that's the Alabama LSU effect, for example. Now, what we're waiting on is a similar thing to happen in the ACC. So far, it's Clemson and it's like, it's like Clemson and Sons. It's basically what the ACC has been for a little while. Mr. JBL on Twitter, what are your thoughts on expanding the SEC conference schedule to nine games, keep the divisional round robin and cross-division rivalries, but have two rotating cross-division games instead of just one? Eight years between Auburn and Florida meeting was a drag. I'm all for it, JBL, but it is a lost cause right now among at least 13 other SEC head coaches. Nick Saban's been the only one vocally supporting this, at least at last check. So I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Ty on Twitter, which new coach in the Southeastern Conference this season has the most to prove? Love your show. Keep grinding. Mike Leach is the answer here. Mike Leach is a guy who has developed a reputation for doing things a certain way offensively. And the simple question I have is, does it translate when he has to face elite defensive back play, future Sunday talent on the defensive side of the ball, specifically Defensive backs, corners, nickels, safeties. He's going to face athletes there, the likes of which he did not face a majority of the time in Lubbock, Texas, or Pullman, Washington. So going to have to be a lot of adapting that takes place on the part of Mike Leach. I don't know how long we just went. I'll see when we're done. But been a lot of fun, guys. Again, there are a number of ways to reach me. You can hit me in the email inbox, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can hit me in the Twitter DMs. Follow me, I would ask you to do, as you DM me on Twitter. Had a lot of followers on Twitter this week and really want to grow that number because I want to, I want to grow all of our numbers before the season. We're going to blow it out during the season. I, you guys will love what we're going to have for you during the season. So until then, the best way, the most preferred way for you to get your questions to us is going in the podcast. However you're listening to us right now, give us one of those five-star reviews and then write a review and put a question in that review. I answered every one of them we had from this past week on this show. I'll answer every one of them we get this week on next week's show. So until then, really appreciate you listening. Have a great rest of the week. Remember, Late Kick Live airs Thursday nights and Sunday nights on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, and that is at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. If you missed the live version, you can check out the replay. Got a lot going on right now, and the plate's only going to get more and more full as college football season approaches. Until next time, this has been the Late Kick Extra Podcast. I'm Josh Pate. Take care. Take care.